I was trying to figure out an introduction for this morning, and, and this morning we're talking about the preeminence of Christ and that He is first in all things. And, and as I was sitting on the couch trying to come up with an introduction, my, my kids get this, this, we have this big crate or this, it's not Tupperware, mud, Rubbermaid, so I'm dating myself a little bit, this Rubbermaid container and has a, a marble run in it. And that's all these pieces that you make and the marbles can go all over the place and the three kids bring it out and they're all in front of me and one of them decides that he is in charge. I'm not going to say which one. But I did say he, so that narrows it down to two. <laughs> he decides he's in charge and another one decides he's in charge. So that really narrows it down. And I'm watching this, and they're pulling out the pieces, and, and this, this scene unfolds where one is taking as many of the pieces as fast as he can, and the other's taking all the cool pieces that he can, and you can only imagine what happens next. As all of a sudden, Dad, he has the pieces I need. Dad, he has the pieces I need. And, and it became this competition to see who was first, to see who was going to be in charge of the marble run? Especially in a case where it's really hard to build a run with only half the pieces, and especially like all of the, the long pieces missing. You, you just can't, you, you need to come together and you need to, to build it together. And, and we worked it out and, and Alicia's off to the side just sort of watching, trying to, you know, just being a, a little sister. And we worked it out, and one of them who had, who had gotten it out and asked if he could play with it, we said, okay, you, you can build the first one. And So then the other one decides, oh, he's in charge. I wanted to be in charge. And so I'm watching, and just when, when no one's watching, all of a sudden, Dad, he's not building it right. Dad, he's doing this. Daddy, he's doing this. And then it became this this chance for him to pick at everything he could that the one in charge was doing wrong. And there's always stuff to pick on. Of course there is. But he was acting out because he wasn't in charge. He didn't get his way. And I was watching this scene and thinking, oh, children. (laughs) And I thought, man, maybe I should say, oh, humans. Oh, humans, because we all do the same thing and we want control and we want our, our way. We want to be heard. We want to be first. We want to be first. And that's the root of most sin. That's the root of the first sin. We want to be first. Today, as we come to the text, we want to clearly say we are not first. We are not in charge. We are not in control. But praise God, we know who is. And so we'll come to the text, and and Paul brings the church at Colossae to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, what His role is in creation, in the church, and in an individual life. What is His role? And then what effect does that have on us? Especially in a church that was, was struggling with outside influences that was saying, here, believe this God and believe this God and believe the spirit of this river and, and appease this spirit. And, and all of these gods were fighting for preeminence. 
They were fighting for who was best, who should be worshipped. And at the same time, you had people that, that, that were starting to teach that the physical side of things was evil. And so God couldn't have created everything. He wouldn't have created anything because that's the physical stuff. That's evil. And so the church had all these things in conflict. And Paul masterfully, still in his introduction, as he's thanking God for the church, he draws them back to the preeminence of Christ. So this morning, I'd like to do the same thing. And I tried to keep the outline pretty simple. There's a lot more detail we could get into. But as I got into some of the technical aspects of the text, I found I was, I was spending more time thinking about the technical makeup of the text than who Jesus Christ was. And I, I, losing the whole point. And so this morning, I just have two, two points, one on the front page, one on the back page, and then lists of things of how it describes Christ. Because really, that list of bullet points of how Christ is described, if nothing else happens this morning except those are impressed on our hearts, we walk away a worshiping congregation. We walk away a worshiping congregation. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we study this piece of poetry that Paul composes for the church to bring them back to who Jesus Christ is. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 15 this morning. Colossians 1.15. And I've separated the text into two halves, and they're roughly parallel to each other as Paul starts with the big picture and narrows down to eventually the individual, the church and the individual. But the first three verses were point number one there is Jesus is preeminent over creation. Jesus is preeminent over creation. Now, just before we go any further, we want to talk about what preeminent means. Because we might have a lot of ideas, okay, what does that word mean? It's used in verse 18, which is sort of the hinge verse of this text, the point of this text that Jesus is preeminent. To be preeminent means not only to be first, it includes the aspect of first, but it also includes the idea of being above and supreme in rank and in position and in authority. So it's not just first, but in rank, position, and authority. And so when we say Jesus is preeminent, we are saying He is above all things, but He also is ruler over all things and has authority over all things. That makes sense? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about when we say Jesus is preeminent over creation. So we start at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right from the start, we get two descriptions of Jesus Christ. Two descriptions of Jesus Christ. The first there is He is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Jesus is a, is a visible expression for us of who God is. The word for image there is much more than just a copy. And, and Paul here isn't saying, oh, he's sort of like a facsimile of God or, or a, a Xerox of God. The word here includes the idea that he is the very essence of God, the very person of God. An exact, visible representation illuminating God's essence in a visible way. 
Really what we have here is a statement of God saying, I am revealing myself to you. You don't know me as well as I would like you to know me. And so I'm revealing who I am to you in Jesus Christ. Because what we have is Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. And they are both the the first and second members of the Trinity. They are one in essence, in being. And Jesus is God revealed to us on earth. In John chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, a couple verses that help us understand this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And in verse 18 there, he says, no one has seen God. But then he switches to talking about Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So John is saying, Jesus is God, fully God. And He came to earth to show us in a visible expression who God is. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, we see the the same type of, of wording. He, being Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, and we, we, as we come to saying Jesus is the exact image of God, we proclaim that what he is saying is that he is God. He's not a created being. He's not somehow a, a God infesting a human body and invading a human body. But no, God became flesh. And he became a human. He didn't take over an existing human. He became a human in the flesh, so we could know God. What an amazing way to start a passage of worship to our Savior. He is the image of the invisible God. The second half of that verse, He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. And some have used this verse in error to teach heresy to say, see, He was created. Firstborn means He's born. And and in our understanding of firstborn, I I see where people are going with it. But in the Hebrew understanding of firstborn, the the word, when when someone says, I'm the firstborn, what came to mind wasn't necessarily birth order. It was a statement of status. It was a statement of authority. See, the firstborn is the one that got the inheritance. The firstborn is the one that had authority over the rest of the family, the rest of the kids when the parents passed away. This by no means that Jesus was created, and the next verse is going to to show that. But it's saying that He has primacy over all of creation. He's before them in time, but in status and in rank. An illustration of that is in Psalm 87, verse 27. And um, God is talking to David here. And he's talking to David as King David. And he says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Was David the first king? No. Was he the oldest of all the kings? No. The way that the word is used here is that he's the greatest. He is above all things. 
or all kings in this case. The highest of the kings of the earth. That's the usage that we see Paul using here when he says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He existed before creation, has supremacy over creation. He has existed for all eternity. He is God. And so right from the start, Paul starts by saying he's the image of the invisible God. He is God Himself. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is above creation in rank. And then we get into verse 16. And verses 16 and 17 really talks about, okay, how can we say that? Why can we say that He's the firstborn of all creation? Why can we say He's the image of God? And you see that in verse 16 because it starts for. So He's explaining what has come before. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And there's some important words to understand there. We'll, we'll, we'll pull it apart quickly because it helps us understand who Jesus Christ is. The first in your notes is He is the source of creation. He is the source of creation. In verse 16 there, for by Him, some of your translations translate it for in Him. And, and the, the way that the, the in or the by is used there is one of source that the origin of creation comes from Jesus Christ. Let me explain it a different way. I have a set of keys here. Did I create these keys? No. Could any of you, sitting there by your own power, using no ingredients, ex nihilo, out of nothing, could you create a set of keys? Anyone? That's what Paul is saying Jesus did. Out of nothing, out of no substance, out, out, of, out of no matter, no atoms, out of nothing, Jesus created everything. That sends chills down my back. We can't even comprehend that. That goes against our, our laws of nature. And Paul starts by saying, this is one of his qualifications. This is why Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is why He is supreme. He created everything out of nothing. Try it. Do it. No one can. He's God. And just in case the, the Colossians were wondering, well, what about the spirit world? And what about the, the God of the river and all this? Paul goes on to say, okay, let's include everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And the wording there includes the angelic realm, both good and bad. He's saying God created everything. And we should be in awe that out of nothing, God created everything. And it's interesting that he includes rulers. That he includes the spiritual world. The good and the bad. Because sometimes we can get so worried. We can get worried about elections coming up. We can get worried about what Satan's doing in this world. And what an important reminder that God created everything. God created those rulers. God created the spiritual world which means He understands it, which means He's supreme over it. 
even when we don't understand it. So for by Him all things were created. Then jumping down to the end of 16, all things were created through Him. All things were created through Him. And that word for through, the next point, the next bullet point, is Jesus is the power of creation. He is the power of creation. And I say, well, that's sort of like the source of creation. It is, but this is more agency that by His direct act, all things are created. By His direct act, the stars were put into place. And we still haven't collided with one. By His direct act, all of creation and all of the ecosystems and everything we see was put into place. And we see His design. We see His wisdom. We see His creativity. That's where Paul is going. Jesus is not only the source of creation, He is the power of creation. I love walking around in the mountains at night on a clear night and just looking up. Don't see a lot of stars here. There's a couple, but there's a lot more out there. And, and, and you go up to the mountains, you just look up, and I'm amazed at how Jesus Christ has orchestrated all of creation. I just want to read some, some stats about the created universe. Don, if you could put up the slides. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Not only did God make the universe beautiful, but He made it unimaginably large. And I'm going to read some of the stats here because I, I don't know all these just off the top of my head. The range of scales in the universe is truly staggering. The universe contains objects of incredible size and mass and at distances which we can't even grasp. When we consider the power of Jesus Christ who made all this, we cannot help but feel humbled. We cannot help but feel humbled. We see the earth. And we see the earth from the moon. There we go. Okay. We see the earth and, and we see our little world of the earth and, and our vision is just right there. But let's move to the moon. The moon is our, our nearest celestial body. It's approximately 2,100 miles in di- diameter. A little bit less than the size of the, the continental United States if you were to place it right on top of the United States. The moon orbits at an average distance of 240,000 miles from the earth. Now, that's a big number, right? But some of you might even have a car that has 240,000 miles on it. Anyone have a car? (laughs) Yeah, a couple of you do. But that is a huge number. That's the moon. Okay, so that's just the moon, 240,000 miles away. On one hand, it's a long way. On the other hand, when you compare it to the rest of the universe, it's nothing. It's nothing. It orbits the earth with clockwork precision. It hasn't crashed into the earth. It hasn't left the earth's orbit. It is in a perfect placement. If we move farther out into space, we consider the sun, the greater light that God created on day four. It's a glowing hot ball of hydrogen gas. derives its energy from the fusion of hydrogen to helium in its core. One person described it as effectively a stable hydrogen bomb. It's an extremely efficient source of energy placed at just the right distance to provide the right amount of light and heat for the Earth. It's about 400 times further away than the Moon. 
Interestingly enough, it's about 400 times larger than the moon, which means from our perspective, they are roughly the same size, which is why we have things like solar eclipses. And God planned it this way, that the, the, the two lights that he would create would have the same angular size for us, they would look about the same, but yet one is much farther away. You see a comparison of sizes there. Sun, moon, earth. Those little dots in comparison. The sun is over a hundred times the diameter of the earth. If it were hollow, it could hold over one million earths. And Jesus created this with a word. He designed it with a thought. It's 93 million miles away. We can't fully appreciate just how far away the sun is, but let's try. How long would it take to drive 93, miles, 93 million miles? If you were to drive 65 miles per hour, 24 hours a day, it would take you 163 years to drive that distance. I don't think any of your odometers have 93 million miles on them. That's the sun to the earth. Yet the sun to the earth is closer than any other star. And, and in, when, we, when we continue to go out, when we think of our solar system, the, it becomes just staggering to think of the, the range of, of space that we're thinking. Pluto is about 40 times further away from the sun than the earth is. Traveling at 65 miles an hour, it would take about 6,500 years to reach Pluto. The solar system is vast. If that was all God let us see, we should be amazed at who he is. However, that's not all. We go to the next nearest star system to the Earth, besides the sun, the Alpha Centauri system. It contains more than one star. It contains two bright stars, comparable to the sun, they revolve around each other every 80 years. The distance to this system is about 25 trillion miles. 25 trillion miles. Such a number has little meaning to most of us. It's about six... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> it's about 6,800 times further away from the Earth than Pluto is. I'm not even going to try to figure out how long it would take to drive there. But this was helpful to me. If we think of, of a miniature scale model of our solar system, and, and picture Pluto's orbit being about this, around the sun, about one, one foot. Okay? If Pluto's orbit is about one foot, and the sun in the center, the Earth would be just over an eighth of an inch away from the sun. So far, so good? Nice little solar system here. Where we would place that next nearest star in our one-foot scale model system, at that scale, Alpha Centauri would be over a half mile away. This is our solar system. Alpha Centauri is somewhere beyond target. <laughs> God created this with a word, with a thought. Are we getting a picture of how vast and how supreme our God is, and Jesus Christ. However, it doesn't stop there. And, and I'll just go through these quickly. This actually is not a picture of the Milky Way. This is the Andromeda Galaxy. But all of the stars around us form the Milky Way Galaxy. 
and then we come to other galaxies like the Andromeda galaxy that are even further away. And, and we just keep going out and we end up with a view of the universe that we cannot comprehend. We have things like nebulas, if we want to put the, the Rosetta Nebula. And the next one is the Horsehead Nebula. And these are just out there that God created to dazzle us with who He is. To dazzle us. He created, He was the source of these. They were done through Him, by His power, by His design. And we worry about such little things. I worry about such little things. And I wonder if God is present and I wonder if God can handle some of my problems. And with a word, He created all things. Be amazed at Jesus Christ. The last part of verse 16 there, all things were created by Him or through Him and for Him. The next point on your notes, Jesus is the purpose of all creation. Jesus is the purpose of all creation. So many times we think of ourselves as the purpose. When we draw maps, where do we center maps? Where we are. When we draw the solar system, we always look for Earth. When we draw the Milky Way, we want to know where, where we are. And, and our, our, the natural man in us, our sinful nature says, where am I in all this? And Jesus is saying, actually, it's about where am I in all this? Because all things were created through Him and for Him. Village, that includes you and I. It doesn't just mean the stars and the beauty of the stars, but you and I are created by Him and for Him. He has authority over all. Then verse 17, last point under this, that He is, he is Lord over creation. Verse 17 says, And He is before all things, reaffirming His preeminence, and in Him all things hold together. And in Him all things hold together. And that's another key phrase. And the word for hold together there is the idea of coherence. Of being able to bind together. And, and again, we could boggle our minds with this. If you think about some of the things that, that God holds together. Jack and I were talking earlier and he said there's, there's four major forces of attraction. Gravity, magnetism, and then a stronger and a weaker attraction, or a stronger and weaker force. And think just of gravity for a minute. And would any of you walk up here and stand here and say, you know, fall backwards, I'm not going to catch you today, because you're going to float. Anyone going to do that? No, you think I'm nuts. Okay, who can explain gravity for me? You can't because God holds these, these forces together in His hand. When we think of the atom, I have a picture of a, a carbon atom here. And, and in an atom, you have the protons and the neutrons at the center that, that bind together to make the nucleus. And then the electrons are just flying around the nucleus. And, and 
Atoms make up everything that we, we are, everything in our physical world. They form molecules and that our, our cells and our bodies come out of that, the chair, everything. But these, these electrons are just flying around at breakneck speeds. And what's strange is they don't hit each other. Otherwise, our bodies would just fly apart and, and blow up. Their orbits, they stay in orbit. And we think the solar system is amazing with nine or is it eight? I don't know, I don't know what the status of Pluto is right now, but with, with the, the planets that we have, but this is happening in every one of our bodies every moment of the day. And they don't know why the electrons stay in orbit. It's one of those laws of attraction and we can try to explain it, but in the end, God holds even down to the atom in his hands. And if he was to, for a moment, say, I'm on vacation, I'm not going to worry about the universe, the universe would disintegrate. We do not have a God that is distant. He is present and holding all of creation in his hands. Holding all things together. And I think about that. And again, I come back to our concerns. And, and, and my prayer this morning is that we elevate our understanding of Jesus Christ. And we exalt Him. And we see Him as the Creator of all things and the Sustainer of all things. The Preserver of all things. And our response can only be that all of our lives should also fall under His rule. Every aspect of our lives should fall under His rule. And it's hard sometimes to see Him as the Creator of all things and the Sustainer of all things. One little boy once said, you know, if Jesus were to come back today, would He understand computers? But He's wrestling with, well, you know, the world's changed. We have all these things that I don't understand. Is Jesus still preeminent? That's the question. And Jesus is still preeminent. He understands all because He created all. He sustains all. And so when Paul there in verse 15 says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, these points are what he's talking about. That He's the source of all things. That is by His power that all things were created. For His purpose, all things were created, and He is the sustainer of all things. That is the God we worship. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting? If Paul was to write, you know, Jesus helped create all things, doesn't quite get it all, and, and you know, some things He doesn't quite, isn't able to hold together. No thanks. It's not God. Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord over creation, preeminent over creation. Moving to the next couple verses. Because Paul here now reintroduces the same thoughts, but he goes from here to here. And he says, Jesus is not only Lord of creation, but he's Lord, he's preeminent over recreation, over new creation. 
Because what happened with His creation is sin entered into the world. And and all of creation has been tainted by sin. It is not how God intended it to be. How He created it to be. And so we see the entire Bible, the entire scope of history is about God's purposes of redeeming creation, all of creation, to Himself. And that's why the story ends in Revelation with the new heaven and the new earth. That's the story of how He's doing that through Jesus Christ. And so Paul here says, you know, He's the Lord of creation. He created all things. But sin has entered into the world. And that still hasn't challenged Jesus' preeminence because He is preeminent over recreation. So we get to verse 18. And we see three different statements here that, that all are plays off the same word. The first in verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. And that word for head there means to have authority over, but also to give life to. So it's two aspects, authority and life. And what a picture of of how the church relates to Christ. He is our head. He is where our direction comes from. But He's also the one that formed the church by His blood on the cross. There would be no church without His death and resurrection. And so He is the originator of the church. And and just as he's, He's the source of creation, He's the source of the church and supreme over the church. So many times we can say, well, this is my church. This is my church. It's God's church. He is the head. We are part of His body. But verse 18 goes on to to two more statements. The next one is, He is the beginning. He is the beginning. And the way that this is phrased is this is actually a title for Christ. It's not saying he, he was from the beginning, although that includes that concept. He is the beginning. Think about that with creation. Think about that with supremacy. He's the first principle, the source. He's the beginning. Then Paul goes on to say he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead, referring to his resurrection. And again, the, the, the word here for firstborn is the same. It's not saying He was the first one raised from the dead. We know in the Old Testament there were some, and Jesus Himself raised others from the dead in His ministry. But His resurrection is supreme because it is the foundation for all future hope. Without His resurrection, there's nothing. And so Paul here is saying, He's the firstborn from the dead so that you will be raised from the dead. Because He paid for our sins, because He is preeminent, because He is supreme even over death, we have hope. And we fall under His sovereignty. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. That in everything He might be preeminent. In John 14, verse 19, Jesus says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. And catch what he says. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. The preeminence of God over death, that's what gives us hope that we can live to. 
But then in verse 19, we get the qualifications again. We get the why. How can Jesus say that He's the head of the church? Head of believers? And in verse 19, we have, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the bullet point there is Jesus is fully God. The fullness that's referenced there is the complete essence of God. Every part of God. Because He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself. Paul's going to talk about that again a little later in chapter 2, verse 9, if you want to flip there. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Paul's attacking this idea that, that Jesus couldn't have been come in, in bodily form. He's saying Jesus Christ, the incarnate Jesus Christ in the flesh, is fully God. Why do we worship God? Why is He preeminent? Because He is God. Jesus is God. But then we go on from verse 19 there to what His work accomplished in verse 20. And the next qualification is that Jesus reconciles all things to God through His death. The power of reconciliation. Of recreation. Of making new creatures. In verse 20 it says, and through Him, there's that through again, by His power, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by His blood of His cross. By the blood of His cross. And we move from creation and, and, and what God intended with creation to recreation, how He is reconciling creation back to Himself. And Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, entered our plane of existence to accomplish this. Now again, some have used this to promote universalism. And universalism is the idea that all will come to Christ no matter what. You don't have to accept Him. You don't have to believe in Him. Eventually, because, because God wants everyone to Himself, they'll all come to Himself. That is not what this passage is saying. That's why it is so important to look at all of Scripture together. In verses like 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, Paul says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Who have believed. And so this isn't talking about universalism, that everyone will come into a, a right relationship with God, but what it's saying is God will judge evil and will remove evil and create a new heaven and a new earth where those that believe in Him will be in relationship with Him. As well, we know that all those that don't believe in Him, they will be reconciled to the truth. They will know the truth. Because we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Doesn't mean all those will spend eternity in heaven, but that all will know the truth and admit to the truth. And that's how God is reconciling all things to Himself. He's establishing His Lordship. He's establishing the right relationship between Himself and those underneath Him. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The last point there is Jesus is the purpose of recreation. He is the purpose. Just as he is with creation, he's the purpose of recreation. In verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. The focus is the relationship with him to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. I just want to read the last few verses. Because Paul now in verse 21 comes down to, okay, how does this personally apply to you? How have you personally benefited from a God who is above all things, from Jesus Christ who is preeminent? And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And he brings them back to saying, God, Jesus Christ is preeminent above all things. He created all things, but he's also preeminent above recreation because he died on the cross. And through belief in him, we are reconciled. We are brought from being an enemy to being a friend into relationship with him. And he throws in an encouragement to be steadfast. And he's not saying you can lose your salvation here, but he's saying those that are truly saved will remain stable, having a good foundation, deeply rooted, and will remain steadfast. The encouragement is to stand firm and to worship a God who is above all things. We worship you this morning for who you are. We worship you, Jesus Christ, because you are God Almighty. Because you have created all things and you are recreating all things. So Lord, in our prayer to you, in our worship to you, we read your word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Lord God, Jesus Christ, you are first. We exalt you. Lord, help us this week to make you preeminent in every moment of our day. That you will be preeminent not only in creation, but in the creation of our lives. Help us to stop trying to be first and allow the creator and preeminent one of all things to be first. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' holy name, amen.